Hi, I'm Michael Couture, and this is the West Block, politics, perspectives, and players. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is doubling down on his promise for the UK to leave the EU at the end of next month with a bill to rule out any more Brexit extension. Johnson won a majority government earlier this month with a promise to be out of the EU by January 31st. So is the UK ready to leave the EU? And what does that mean for trade and relations between the island and mainland? Joining me now is Alan Wager, research associate at King's College in London. Uh, Prime Minister Johnson is moving forward on his promise for Brexit at the end of next month. He has a majority in Parliament. Do you see anything between now and January 31st that will stop Brexit? There's nothing that can stop Brexit now between, between now and January the 31st. The majority that uh, Boris Johnson has in the House of Commons of 80 means that it's there's next to nothing uh, beyond some sort of you know freak national or you know international accident that could stop Brexit from happening by January the 31st. So that's that's a given. It's the next stage of Brexit where the uncertainty still still exists. So what is that next stage? Like walk me through what that means for the UK and Europe on February 1st. What does that relationship between the UK and Europe really look like? So the UK will formally leave the European Union uh, and on the 1st of February it will no longer be a member of the European Union but for all intents and purposes for you know economy for for people the way people travel for the way people do business everything's going to remain the same on on day 1 because the UK is going to enter this transition period which is meant to last until the end of December next year where all of the rules and regulation and laws that uh, the, the UK abides by as an EU member will remain it's, 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 it's in that period and at the end of that period uh, that, that the problems might come if we haven't reached a new trade negotiation, a new trade deal with the European Union. So, so for, the first, for the first year, uh, that, that's the room that Boris Johnson has to, to play with to, to try and negotiate a new outcome. After that, we set this deadline. After that, then things get more difficult potentially. That's not a lot of time. And how difficult will it be for him to get all of that done within that time period? The trade negotiations normally take, uh, you, know, you know, seven or eight years. You know, the, the, the EU's trade with Canada, you know, took seven or eight years. And this is a sort of unique trade deal in the way in that we're talking about de-alignment rather than alignment, rather than, rather than trying to build up trade between two countries and two blocks. We're talking about a new sort of trade agreement where the where two, where two areas try to detach, and that's, that's going to be difficult. It's possible that the UK and the EU could reach a deal, but it's likely to be on the European Union's terms because uh, you know, the, the, the EU will be calling the shots and it will probably have to mean that the UK doesn't get some access to things like the financial services industry that it wants. It'll have to align with EU rules and areas where the EU say so. So it's possible to meet this new ambitious timetable, but it's likely to be to a sort of suboptimal outcome for the UK. Beyond dealing with the EU, the UK really does need to look at trade relations with other nations like Canada. So what does that kind of negotiation look like and where is that on the list of priorities? Well, the first thing to say is it's difficult to create new trade agreements with third countries if the UK hasn't yet resolved its trade relationship with the European Union. Because its relationship with the European Union and what it agrees to in terms of regulations and rules within, it, within the UK's economy will define what is possible in, in, in further negotiations with, with other countries. So it's a sort of sequential process, if you like. The, the, the priority needs to be the trade deal with the European Union first, and then the UK can go on to try and 
replicate or, or existing trade deals that it's lost with the European Union uh, as, as being no longer a member or, or try and find new trade deals with other uh, countries like you know, the US or China or whatever. But that's that's going to be a lot longer. It's going to be further in the distance. So at the moment, it's, it's going to all need to be focused on this EU trade deal. So are they back at square one or do deals like CETA kind of form a blueprint? It's possible that, that CETA can, can form a blueprint, blueprint for some things. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the UK was a strong advocate of CETA within the European Union and, and the broad outlines of CETA are, are something that the UK could largely adhere to. What will, what will the UK want that it didn't get in CETA? Perhaps, you know, greater, greater uh, you know, uh, possibility for the UK's financial services industry in Canada or the services industries more generally within Canada. So that's, those are the areas of potential uh, differentiation. But as a whole, uh, yeah, CETA provides a blueprint for basically how to do a comprehensive uh, and ambitious free trade agreement. Okay, back to domestic politics for a second here. Johnson won a majority. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn is going to step down. The Labour Party seems to be in a bit of disarray. How much of a voice do you think they will have in the months ahead as the government negotiates trade agreements and its standing outside of the EU? The government will have a year to negotiate a trade deal, and in the first half of that year, the Labour Party will be involved in a massive internal battle for the future of the, of the Labour Party. Whoever comes out of that competition successful will have a period, a massive period of rebuilding to do because the, Lo the Labour Party has the lowest number of seats in the House of Commons since 1935, since, it, since basically the creation of the Labour Party. So it's going to have a real period of rebuilding. And, uh, and, and during that period, during these five years uh, in opposition, the Labour Party will find it much more difficult to defeat Boris Johnson in the House of Commons because Boris Johnson has that big majority in the House of Commons. So the Labour Party in the last few years has been very successful in defeating prime ministers and defeating Conservative governments in Parliament. And we've seen a whole load of drama in Parliament. Now it's going to be a lot more difficult to inflict those defeats on, on the government. And the Labour Party will be concerned primarily with trying to rebuild its electoral position in the country. So I want to ask you about Scotland now. The Scottish National Party won 48 out of a possible 59 seats. And leader Nicola Sturgeon is talking about a push for Scottish independence. Now, she will appeal to Parliament for this. But do you think we will see a vote on Scottish independence within the next year or so? So the next big uh, flashpoint for Scottish politics is 2021, when there's the Scottish Assembly elections. If the SNP does really well in those, highly likely, then it's going to become increasingly difficult for the government to avoid another contest, another referendum on independence. So while not within the next 12 months, probably within the next two, three, four years, it's certainly possible that it could, it could just be impossible to ignore the case for a, a referendum in Scotland. And that's the big potential problem for Boris Johnson. If it, while, while it looks secure at the moment, he's got a big majority in the House of Commons, if, he ends, if his premiership ends up with the breaking apart of the United Kingdom, he'd have no choice but to resign. So at the moment in this pre-post-election pre period, things look great for Boris Johnson, but the big pressure that's coming from Scotland, England, English nationalism against Scottish nationalism could be what ultimately brings him down as prime minister. Now, weaved into that, how is the immigration question going to get solved? Hard borders or no hard borders? So Boris Johnson made his name as a sort of liberal uh, conservative who was sort of pro-immigration. But in the last few years, he sort of changed tack and become a, 
sort of anti-immigrant politician. And clearly, the UK is going to need a new immigration system after Brexit. And the Conservative Party have made clear that that's not going to be able to prioritise EU migrants over non-EU migrants. So it's going to be a, a system that's, that's, that, that reduces the amount of immigration uh, overall. At the moment, though, in the immediate period, nothing is really going to change. We're going to continue to have free movement in the UK for at least the next year. But the ability for, the, for Boris Johnson to control those that immigrate those immigration numbers is going to be a, P, a key question for his electoral success. It's what he's built the case for Brexit on the idea that after Brexit, the UK will look a lot more like uh, the sort of immigration system that Canada or Australia has than the one that we enjoy at the moment as a member of the European Union. Now, I know within the UK, Brexit has been all-consuming for Boris Johnson. But on the world stage, at least on this side of the Atlantic, there's often a comparison to President Donald Trump from where you sit. Is that a fair comparison? I mean, the way he's fought these recent electoral contests, showing a sort of frayed connection with the truth, if you like, uh, and, and the phrase, get Brexit done, which people sort of, when they hear it, it's got the same sort of cadence, the same ring to it as those as those sort of Trump lines about make America great again, right? He's clearly seen in that band of leaders in terms of the way he approaches electoral politics. But he's potentially a more uh, uh, conciliatory figure on the world stage. I mean, he's uh, clearly going to attempt to try and keep the UK's position within the NATO alliance. He's clearly going to try and promote the UK and this idea of global Britain, something that he promoted as foreign secretary. He wasn't a particularly successful foreign secretary, but he wasn't in isolationist and he wasn't insular. So we'll see an attempt really to try and potentially rebuild the UK's world on the, uh, role on the world stage after this, uh, what's uh, after the, the wrangling that's taken place in the last few years of Brexit. So then not as much of a disruptor as President Trump? Not as much of a disruptor as, as Trump, potentially someone that will attempt to rebuild uh, the UK's reputation by sort of attacking probably towards uh, an approach of cooperation uh, with Europe as much as possible. But during all this time, you know, the discussions within the European Union, for example, will evolve and adapt without the UK being present. So the relationship between France and Germany is going to be really important for the UK. The UK is not going to be in the room. But the, but, but the UK's there will be an attempt to, 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 to form relationships, particularly with those uh, uh, um, Commonwealth countries uh, and that's going to be something that's a key part of the narrative of the UK not needing the European Union. The UK can move towards, for example, countries like Canada. And that's all the time we have for today, Mr. Wager. Thanks so much for joining us. For the West Block, I'm Mike LeCouture.